Ever seen any confusing road signs? Yeah, maybe. Uh, there's times where you just get lost and it is not your fault. Never is, right? Here's, here's a few confusing signs that I saw. Let's just have some fun this morning. Think about it for a minute. So which way do you go? Okay, what's the next one? Let's move to the next one. Either way, you're breaking the law. Choose wisely. Next one. Now, I don't know if you notice a problem with this. My children might. But that is not a deer. In case you didn't recognize. Okay, next one. One more. There were some times driving on missions trips where it felt a lot like that. (laughs) Signs can be confusing, can't they? But yet signs are what gives us direction and what directs other, in these, in this case, other people to a certain destination. If you drove on that last sign, you might never get to your destination. You just might never get there because it's just too confusing. I remember skiing one time, and I'm not a great skier, and so there's certain runs that I tend to stay off of because I would die. And, and so, but, but they have signs up that have like blue, which are good, and, and black diamonds, which are evil. And especially like the double black diamonds. And I remember this one time I was skiing, and I came to a sign, and, and it had two blues, and I thought I was fine. And, and so I took one of them that I hadn't been on and thought, oh, this is, this is going to be fun. And, and that part of it was... And we got down to that bottom of the little run, and the next sign only had black diamonds. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And I remember inching my way down one of those, because I had followed the signs, but they had directed me poorly. They had directed me to a situation that was way over my head, that was something that was difficult to get out of. This morning I want to talk about direction and signs. And, and not so much road signs, but signs of what we point to with our life. Every one of us points to something. And every one of us points the people around us to something. And the question this morning is, are we pointing people in a confusing fashion to destinations that they have no idea where they're going to be going? Or are we pointing them to Jesus Christ? And our signs in our life may be very confusing. And we may look a lot like that last sign where there's arrows going every which direction and I'm not even sure where you are here was. But this morning as we talk, we want to talk about, okay, what, what do we find in Scripture? As we start the, the, our series, When God Chose Sandals, how we see God as the, the Savior and King of the universe coming and choosing to become man, choosing to be a servant for our salvation, Mark just jumps right into it. Almost. We get, a, we get a little introduction before we get to the ministry of Christ. Eight verses. And that's it. And then Christ is on the scene and we're into the action and, and we just get a little bit. But in those eight verses that we're going to look at this morning, it's all about pointing to something. It's all about a sign. And in this case, it's about John the Baptist and what his ministry was and what his role was in actually seven verses have to do with John the Baptist. So it's just going to be quick and getting right to the point. 
But as we look at God's sovereign plan for salvation to those who believe, we find some very important principles for living a life pointing to Christ, as John the Baptist did. So as we study, we'll study the biblical story and the biblical context, but I also pray that we study what Christ would have us do as disciples, how He would have us copy and imitate what John the Baptist pointed to. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And we'll start by reading through all eight verses. If you don't have a Bible this morning, under the chairs we've put an a, um, ESV Bible that you're welcome to use. We encourage you to be bringing your own Bible, though, so that way you can be writing notes in it and highlighting and really digging into it. We ask that you not write in these. These are... Um, just put them back under the chairs after we're done. But also, if you don't have a Bible... If you don't have an English Bible of of some translation that you can read, we invite you to just take this with you and make this yours, just as a way to make sure that we are in God's Word and studying God's Word together. Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In these eight verses, we have the introduction, the precursor to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And as we study, may we learn to live a life that points to Christ. Not a to-do list, not a, a list of things. Well, okay, John did camel's hair and wore a leather belt. Okay, pointing Jesus to Christ means I go get camel's hair and a leather belt. It's not what, what we want to study this morning, but, but rather what principles do we find and what ways can we change our thinking to point ourselves to Christ? It would be easy to say, okay, here's five things you can do to point to Christ, and that would be worthless. Because unless we change our thoughts and match what God's plan was, and match how God, how God introduced the life of Christ, and how God chose to point to Christ, unless we change our thinking, we change nothing. Because by and large, if, we, if we're honest, aren't we pretty self-centered in nat- by nature? We really want to point to us. But instead, we should be pointing to Christ. Let's start with verse 1 as we look at our verse point. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first thing we see right off the bat is our good news should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our good news should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should actually believe that the gospel is good news. That it's the best news. That it is the most important news that we could ever have. That it is the answer to sin 
and everything this world needs. We should actually believe the gospel is the good news about God himself initiating redemption. I'd like to break this verse down and and just study the different words. Verse 1 is is often considered the, the summary of the entire book of Mark. Some would say it's the summary of the first 13 verses. I would agree with those that say it's the summary of the entire book, saying this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Christ. And it's not just that John the Baptist is the beginning, but that the book of Mark is the beginning of the Gospel. That would explain why, and we'll get there when we get to Mark 16, why, why the Gospel ends so abruptly. We're like, what? But it's the beginning. And the Gospel continues through the church and through His people. But we see the beginning as a time, a point in time, where God Almighty stepped in and intervened and started the creative work of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. The beginning of the Gospel. Last week we talked about a little bit of what the word Gospel means, and it's the Greek work evangelion. And it means good news, literally. And like we said last week, it often was the the herald to a king, the herald to a victory that would announce what's happening. And in this case, it's the herald of God Almighty who created all things, saying, everything changes with my son. Everything changes. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And every word is so key here. And we get to the names of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see three different names. The first being Jesus. And he's referring to the man Jesus that people may have already known, people may have already met. But that Jesus Christ, which literally means salvation of Yahweh, is here. But then the second name he used is Christ. And you've heard me talk about this, that it means the Anointed One, or sometimes it's translated the Messiah. And and what John is doing here, and, and in Greek writing, as you took names and as you added names, and as you added titles, each one served to sharpen and heighten the name before. And so it it added emphasis. And so to say it was Jesus is one thing. To say it's Jesus Christ sharpens and adds emphasis. And he's making a point here. And and we dare not miss that. That Jesus is a man, but he's also the Savior. The Messiah. The King that has come for a spiritual salvation. But then he doesn't stop there and he adds a third description which again serves to heighten it. And so you have Jesus and the Messiah and then the Son of God! And it's that kind of emphasis that he's adding because now he comes to that this is God Himself. That this is God Almighty. And in one one verse, with a few short words, we see the summary of the good news. That God Himself sent Jesus as a man to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. See, right from verse 1, everything points to Christ. Everything points to Christ. There's no confusion. There's no curly cues in the map. There's no do not turn left, right, backwards, or forwards. Everything points to Christ. Who is the content of the good news who is the good news. 
And by showing His divinity, by showing who He is, Mark, and and He'll do this throughout especially the first nine chapters of Mark, repeatedly shows Christ's authority over the supernatural. His authority over the demonic. His authority over death. His authority over sin. As the Messiah. He came to subjugate the principalities and powers. Not as people were expecting, but in a spiritual realm. And it reminds us of several verses. Romans 8, 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see His preeminence over all things. His authority over all things, even the things we think are so powerful. Philippians 2, verse 10, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So from the start, Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. He is the message. What a way to start the gospel of Mark. And it leaves us with with our first question. If that's the good news, if that is the direction and what everything focuses on, is that our good news? Is that the good news that we have that we would just proclaim as loud as we can? The other day I was, I was at home and Susie and the kids came home and Alicia comes running into me. And she's, she's just so excited. And, and Alicia, I can count on Alicia to tell me everything. She goes, we got you a surprise, Daddy. We got you Target. That's what I thought she said. Susie came in a little later and says, we got you chocolate. But for her, that was good news. She couldn't get past that good news and she had to go tell Daddy even if she wasn't supposed to. And that good news consumed her and and she couldn't help but have it ooze out of her. And I'm convicted at what is our good news. See, so many times, I don't think we are apt to share the good news because we forget that it's good news. That we forget it's the best news. What do we talk about? What is our good news? See, it's hard for us to point to Christ if that good news is not the center point of our being. If it's not the core of who we are. Because we will always have an arrow pointing to what our good news is. Maybe it's baseball season starting this week. Spring training. Good news, but not the good news. Maybe it's, it's the news about the Middle East and our concerns over that and we have to share that and we have to share our ideas on that. And that may be news, but it's not the good news. It's not the Gospel. So if we're going to become a people that point intentionally to Christ, we have to actually believe the good news that Jesus came to redeem a lost world to Himself. And that needs to blow us away. Our good news should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. A little over a year ago, 
our neighbor passed away from cancer. And it's a neighbor that we're close to, one that we had witnessed to, and then found out they had accepted Christ and go to another church in the area, a good church. And so we've had wonderful conversations. And I remember going in, and, and she was in a hospital bed in their room, and going in and praying with her and with her husband, and holding her hand and as she was just a few days left. I remember sharing with them the comfort of Jesus Christ. And their faith in Christ Jesus, because we knew without a shadow of a doubt, because she believed in Christ, that she would soon be with him. But what if, what if in my pocket I had a cure to cancer? And I walked in and I pray with them and and I encourage them and I walk out. And I never once share that I have a cure for cancer in my pocket. Have I shared the good news? No. Because apparently I didn't think it was good news for them. And I think about that in a world that is dying from sin and and spending, those that do not accept Christ will spend eternity in hell and in separation from God. And we have the good news. But it's hard to get excited about it. I'm challenged by that. Right from the start, verse 1 of Mark, we see an incredible focus on the good news of Jesus Christ. As we move on to verses 2 and 3, we see the next step in being pointed towards Christ. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we see in these two verses that God planned and initiated the work of John the baptizer. God planned and initiated the work of John the baptizer. And I say, well, why are you calling him John the baptizer? Well, actually, in Mark, in in chapter 6, and in the places where he refers to John, that's the title Mark uses. And so I'm going to use that title as we study Mark. John the Baptizer. But we see right here in these two verses, we see a prophecy that occurred 400 and 500 years earlier of that John the Baptist would be coming, that someone would come to point to Jesus Christ. The prophecies are actually taken from three different passages of the Old Testament. The the first verse in verse verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. That was a combination of actually Exodus and Malachi. Exodus chapter 20, 23 rather, verse 20. And Malachi 3.1. Just for fun, turn, hold your thumb there and turn over to Malachi 3.1. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi was also the last prophet and the last voice that the children of Israel heard as they were waiting for their Messiah. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And they would have been familiar with the whole verse, but but Mark here quotes the first part of that. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Turn also over to Isaiah 40, 
This is the verse 3. This is the main part of the prophecy. Out of a section in Isaiah referring to a new Exodus theme, a section where God is promising a new deliverance for His people. And in Isaiah 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we see Mark bringing them back to the Old Testament. And it's amazing that these verses were written four or five hundred years before. And they point to the events that God is supernaturally and miraculously initiating. And we see that God planned and initiated this work. It was not by accident. It was not a happenstance. It was a direct involvement of the Lord God Almighty. And so Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he only mentions Isaiah. That's the main part of the, the prophecy, even though he's bringing in several others. They didn't have a word processor with extensive footnotes. But Isaiah is the theme that he's using in bringing in these prophecies. One just little quick note that I love some of these things. In the Isaiah 40 passage, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But in Mark's quoting of it, in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, speaking about Jesus, make his path straight. And we see just a little bit of a change where Mark is saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's another point to the deity of Christ. And so Mark, in two verses, ties in the whole Old Testament to the New. He says, I'm not throwing it out. Actually, the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old. And this is exactly how God planned to usher in the Gospel. The imagery he's using out of these prophecies is that of an Eastern courier who would go before a king. And and so a king or someone of royalty would go on a, a, a long journey and they would send either a courier or a soldier on ahead. And that person was to prepare their way in a couple of different fashions. Number one, to announce to the people that he would be visiting, get ready. Get ready, the king is coming. And they could, they could clean things up and, and be ready for the procession of the king. But also, they would inspect the road. And where there were ruts and where there were variations in the road that would possibly cause the chariots to... to break a wheel or something, they would fix those. And they would smooth out or make straight the road or the paths for the king. Doesn't it make more sense when we understand what what they were referring to? And he's saying John, the baptizer, has come to prepare people, to get them ready to hear the message of the king and to prepare their hearts to, to fill in some of the ruts, to fill in some of the obstacles, and to have them ready for the king. The other thing the prophecies tell us is that God had arranged and planned this from the beginning of time. And God intentionally placed his messenger at exactly that point in time, at exactly that location, at exactly that place, to fulfill his purpose. In fact, we know that John was a miraculous birth. If you remember what we talked about at our Christmas service with Zechariah. 
and that God performed a miracle to even start this. And that's so comforting to know that this was not out of the blue, that this was not by accident, that God promised in the Old Testament and God answered in the New Testament, that God is faithful and He will not let us down. And as we look at this, we're reminded that the timing of God is perfect. The timing of God is perfect. If we move again from the biblical story to to application in our lives, God has planned and initiated exactly where we are to point people to Christ. God has planned where you are so you can show someone Christ. You are not where you're at in life by accident, by happenstance. You are exactly where God wants you because He wants you to touch someone with the light of Jesus Christ. And when we think of how do we point our lives towards Christ, the first is we have to actually believe the Gospel is good news, but the second is we have to understand that God has us intentionally where He has us. That boss you hate, that you can't stand because He's always driving you or making you work overtime or just harassing you, God has you there for a reason. Maybe that reason is to be a light to Him. We can complain so easily about our circumstances in life. But it is God who arranges our encounters in life. And it is God who sovereignly says... I want you to follow that example and point to Christ. And I have put people in your life that you need to show Christ to. And you may not like them, and they may annoy you, and they may frustrate you. But God says point to Christ. Point to the Gospel. And just as John the Baptist was not there by accident, we are not in our circumstances by accident. And we are called to see the divine in the mundane. To see the divine encounters in the ordinary parts of life. So we can point people to Christ. Our good news should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has planned where each of us are so we can show and point people to Christ. Then we move on to now the description of John the baptizer. In 4 through 6. Because up till now in 2 and 3, it's just the prophecy. This is happening. And in verse 4, Mark says, and John is the answer to that prophecy. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. What a description. Think about this. I mean, picture this. All of a sudden, this guy comes walking out of the wilderness. And keep in mind, the wilderness was not the Sierras like we think of a wilderness. You know, that, that's Inyo wilderness. It's not the mountains. I think we have a couple pictures of what the wilderness looks like. Doesn't that just look lush? 
And this is the area, these two pictures are probably the area where John the Baptist was coming out of, where he lived. And in this picture, the Jordan is off to the right. You can't really see it. It's, it's up to the right and comes down off the screen. But this is the area where John the Baptist probably was ministering. And so this man walks out of this kind of terrain, wearing camel's hair and a simple leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. Okay. I know what would happen today if someone did that. But do we understand what is happening? Do we understand why this was so important? Mark here is saying that John fulfilled those prophecies. And he comes as a lone hermit-like prophet. But it's important to realize that he's coming as an Old Testament prophet. As a desert prophet. And, and the way that he was dressed and his, his diet was indicative of an Old Testament desert prophet. And so immediately people would have seen this and they would have thought, Elijah. Elijah. In fact, the very place in the Jordan where he was, it was baptizing, right there is where it looks like Elijah was taken up as he was taken up at the Jordan. And so there, there was so much expectation that Elijah would return to usher in the Messiah and usher in salvation. Let me just read a couple of verses. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. These are the last two verses written in the Old Testament. The last things that the children of Israel heard. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You hear that and what are you looking for? Elijah the prophet. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so this man appears out of the wilderness in the same area where Elijah was taken up, wearing the same clothes. In fact, if we look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, and you can write that down, he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. And so we see that already in the Old Testament, this was the apparel of Elijah. And they would have gotten that. They would have seen him and said, there he is. Just as if I, if I walked up here with a stove, black stovepipe hat and a beard, what would you think? Abraham Lincoln. It's not a stretch. Now, you wouldn't think I was Abraham Lincoln himself. But to them, it was that same kind of recognition. And he was coming to the Jordan and baptizing. I think we have a couple pictures of the Jordan. This is one right by the Jordan River at times. There were more um, trees. Then go to the next one. This is the area around where they think John was, was baptizing. So you can see this beautiful, big, clean river. Okay, maybe not. But this is the area where John the Baptist was ministering. It's also important to look at his message. And this is the most important. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And the word for repentance is to turn completely around, to change completely. And he's saying it's time to change. 
And when you repent, then there will be forgiveness of sins. But he's always pointing ahead, and we'll see this in verses 7 and 8. He's pointing ahead to Christ as the source of that forgiveness, not himself. Not his ministry, not his baptism. In fact, in Matthew, we know that he assumed that repentance, he expected repentance would come before baptism. But the baptism was a sign and a symbol of the change that was happening in their heart. There's a couple of different ways baptism was used at the time, and I'll quickly hit these. One was for for Jewish proselytes. Gentiles, when they were coming into the Jewish faith, they would be baptized and it represented cleansing. It represented a leaving behind of sin and the the defilement of being a Gentile and becoming a Jew. The other way that it was used is the Qumran society used it as an initiation into spiritual matters, a daily cleansing, but also an initiation into their group. There were some other ways it was used, but those are the two primary importance here. Because John is asking those from Israel to come from Jerusalem... 20, 30 miles down 4,000 feet of elevation change to come into the wilderness, which would have brought them back to the children of Israel and being in the wilderness 40 years, and to be baptized, which to them was something reserved for the defilement of the Gentiles. And his message was clear. Your hearts, your hearts are just as defiled as the Gentiles who don't follow God. And John the baptizer here preached a clear message of repentance, of pointing to Christ. I love seeing the response in verse 5. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Some commentators have estimated that over the course of his ministry, maybe 300,000 people came and heard him point to Christ. Amazing. Amazing. And I think about this. And I think about John's commitment to point Jesus to Christ with his message, with his diet, with where he lived in that ugly, ugly place, with what he wore. And we see a picture of a man who was willing to say, not my will, who was willing to give every part of himself for the message of the gospel and to point to Christ. And for us, application, if we're to follow in those steps, are we willing, we need to be willing to be different and uncomfortable in every part of our lives to point others to Christ. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Are we willing to give up the comfortable and the normal to point to Christ? Or do we get so concerned about what we wear or where we're going to live or how we're going to look that we forget to point people to Christ? I see churches do this all the time as they are so concerned about the appearance and, and how to be friendly in certain ways that they forget the message. And they are, they're pointing people somewhere, but it's not to Christ. And when we come back to the essentials, it's are we pointing people to Christ and are we willing to give up anything to do that? 
or by how we spend our time and our money and what we're concerned about, are we proclaiming a different gospel? And are we proclaiming and pointing to something very different than Jesus Christ? Are we willing to choose where we live to reach people? Are we willing to choose a job to reach people? Are we willing to not be up on the current everything to reach people? Are we giving confusing signs or are all signs pointing to Christ? To end verses 7 and 8. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what we see is John was humbled by the person and work of Christ. John was humbled by the person and work of Christ. After me comes he who is mightier than I. And he had a sense that, that his mission was nothing like Christ's mission. And if you compared the two, Christ's mission was everything and his was nothing. The imagery he uses in verse 7 is so powerful. You see, a servant, when you walked into a house, the lowliest servant had the job of taking off the guest's shoes and washing their feet. So that was the lowest job that you could have in a house. And in fact, it was so low that the, the rabbinic tradition said a Hebrew slave, a Jew, could not do this for a fellow Jew, even if he was the lowliest slave. A Hebrew slave must not wash the feet of his master, nor put his shoes on him, nor carry his things before him when going to the bathhouse, nor support him by the hips when ascending the steps, and so on. And in another tradition, it says the disciples of a rabbi should perform all the duties of a slave except for removing the shoes. And so when John said this, this was like, what? He said, I'm not even worthy to remove his shoes, and, and their little heads would have been spinning. They're like, well, well, the lowest servant, that, that, but, 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 but. And what John was saying is the work of Christ and who Christ is is so mighty and so powerful and so amazing that he's lower than the lowest servant compared to him. Wow. Lower than a disciple, lower than a slave. In John 3.30, we see John the, the baptizer saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. And this was Jesus' older cousin. And if we're to live a life pointing to Christ, we need to be overwhelmed by His importance and the unimportance of self. That's the application part of point four. Be overwhelmed by his importance and the unimportance of self. It should constantly be hitting ourselves in the face. And John here brings up the work. I baptize in water. It means nothing. But he, he's the one with the real power. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which is salvation. I am nothing. He is everything. I am simply a sign that points to the reality. I am not the reality.
And that's a change of thinking that we have to have because if we're to point people to Christ, we have to be so amazed at who He is, so amazed at His work, and so amazed at how tiny we are in comparison that we can't help but point to reality. I encourage you, if you struggle with that, to go back to the cross. Go back and and study what we talked about in Christ alone and by grace alone, where we are nothing and God is everything. And be amazed at one who is mightier than us, that we are not even worthy of untying the laces of his sandals. This week, when we are tempted to get angry at the car that cuts us off and get angry that we didn't get what we wanted for dinner or get angry that we didn't get whatever it was, he must increase. I must decrease. I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. May our lives clearly and in every area focus people around us to Christ and to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, in your divine sovereignty, you sent John the baptizer to point the way. A man wholly devoted to you, a man who understood not my will, and simply viewed his purpose as to point people to you. Lord, as your disciples, may that be our purpose as well. Strip away everything in our lives that points a different direction. Every signpost that would steer people away from you. And may we be dedicated to you. In your precious name, amen.